Code editors are complex and demanding piece of software that are both essential tools and constant companions for developers. Today, we are interviewing Nathan Sobo to hear about Zed, a code editor focused on multiplayer experiences, performance, and a streamlined minimalist design. Nathan Sobo was a member of the Atom Editor team and GitHub, which worked on the now-deprecated Atom Code Editor. He will share his thoughts on Rust, the impact of very low-latency collaborative coding on happiness, and how to turn an authoring environment into a first-class concern. This episode is hosted by Jocelyn Bernhul. Jocelyn is focused on data, ML, and enterprise software. She has experience as a founder, investor, and product leader, and has worked with both startups and large financial service companies. Jocelyn is currently a Senior Director of Product Management for Security, a unified data controls company. Follow Jocelyn on LinkedIn or on Twitter, at Jocelyn Byrne. Welcome, Nathan. Thank you very much. And uh, yeah, I really appreciate you having me on Software Engineering Daily. Let's get started with just a little bit of um, background for you, because you sort of had this idea or this notion earlier in your career. Yeah, I mean, it started really early for me, just the spark of the idea um, where like right out of college, my first year as a full-time developer, uh, I found myself frustrated with with the tools I was using to write code. Um, And so pretty early on, I got it in my head. I wanted to build a code editor. Uh, I just didn't have a full appreciation for exactly how challenging that would really end up being. Well, it's good that you didn't, because uh, that you wouldn't. If you did everything sensibly, you'd never embark. Um, but let me ask you this: What are some of the difficulties for you know what's wrong with IDEs today, and, and what's wrong with them? And what tell me a little bit about like a little color about the life of the software developer working with an IDE? Well, for me, it was always that I could find something I loved about every IDE, but everyone also came with things that frustrated me and they were all different. Um, and so I really wanted something that synthesized what I loved about all of them. So my first editor was Emacs. And what was cool about that was it was very malleable, you know, Emacs Lisp let you program this thing. Um, but it was also designed for a different era. It didn't really belong on a modern desktop operating system. It didn't conform to any of the UI conventions of it and the other apps I was using didn't take advantage of, you know, the graphical capabilities of a modern system. Um, so, so that was one point in space. And it also kind of, you had to configure it. It was fiddly. You had to mess with it and get it set up just right. Um, then I used Eclipse at that point in time, but that was sort of emblematic. I think of a lot of different, the IDE where it comes with a lot of power and understands the language, but. The other side of that coin was always kind of slow and lumbering and clunky feeling. And so the feeling of using it felt kind of like heavy, wading through molasses. Um, And then another editor that was hot at the time early in my career was TextMate and was later succeeded by Sublime Text. Um, And that's kind of the the lightweight, simple text editor um, that felt really good to use, but was just really constrained in terms of the features that it offered. And so I've always been looking for a tool that could combine 
all of those different attributes together, all the strengths of the editors that I liked, um, dropped all the weaknesses, and then add some more features on top that I've had in mind as well. I'm gonna. I've seen some of your writing and speaking, in which you've talked about some of the pillars of what should be true in a great collaborative IDE um, co-development environment. Um, but let me ask you this: I years ago read like uh, you know extreme programming with peer programming, right? Um, how did people do this today? If they want to work together as software engineers, what has to be true? Yeah, I mean, if you really want to work together in real time. I mean, the gold standard that I experienced prior to that uh, was actually, you know, two keyboards and two mice plugged into one machine sitting next to each other. Um, and that's how I worked early in my career at Pivotal Labs, uh, which was a all pairing, all the time development shop. Um, but to get, especially nowadays, but even then, to get a bunch of software engineers um, all in the same building, you know, in the, at the same time with that setup was a pretty unique situation. And so, yeah, the tools to do it outside of that are kind of screen sharing tools. Um, and the bummer there is it's a very asymmetrical setup because the code lives on one machine and the other person's kind of a passenger because if they want to type they're going to round trip their keystrokes to your computer. And then the impact that that's going to go through the editor, which has its own latency. And then it's got to come all the way back across the network to you, the updating the pixels on your screen share. And so it's just not a good experience trying to type or edit code when you are the person that has the code on their machine. Uh, and so I think that's a big, and that's assuming you're even using a screen sharing solution that lets you type. A lot of them don't. So you're sort of relegated to this. I'm already more... feeling the frustration of not being allowed to type right now as you're saying it. Yeah, yeah. You're kind of dictating to the other person, like, no, no, not that, this. And like, can you can feel a little bossy. Uh, I don't know. It's a weird, it's a really weird dynamic trying to pair through one of these tools unless you're really used to doing it. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so I think that creates a real barrier to people even wanting to do it. And they maybe never experienced the better setup of having two keyboards plugged into one machine because that's a pretty unique situation. Um, and so we really, you know, set out to solve a lot of those problems around actually working together at the same time on code. That's not to say that we're necessarily like advocating a world where you all day, every day, you're working all the time with somebody, but just the opportunity to be like, Hey, I'm working, I'm trying to modify some code that you wrote. Um, can you hop into my workspace and I'm going to follow your cursor around as we talk it through. Um, and then I, you know, maybe then once I understand something about your code, you're going to follow me in, into my code that needs to interface with your code. And I'm going to try to explain to you what I'm trying to do. And then maybe together we come up with a solution of how the API I'm calling that you wrote needs to change. We work on it a little bit and then you go out, we go our separate ways but we've had a productive conversation in the code mm -hmm. with both the ability to write the code a little bit. Um, like that. That's so right. Even so just conversations be, could be more effective. Yeah. You're going to have to be locked at the hip for every single keystroke, but for solving problems or doing new stuff. And I think like maybe onboarding would be another place where um, it could be super helpful since getting started as a software developer in anybody else's environment continues to be a mystery in a lot of ways. 
Yeah, 100%. Yeah, like you really need to be able to have high fidelity conversations. And like, yeah, you were talking about the the earlier on about the myth of the kind of the, the lone developer in their basement or whatever, or, you know, like I could do everything all on my own. And I just, I really do think that's a myth. I think it's an incredibly social activity that we're engaged in here where we need to communicate effectively with each other. And so my frustration in terms of collaborating on software has been like, if you want to work in this one particular way where you work on something by yourself and you build up a set of changes, and then you have a diff that you want to introduce, and then you want to have a conversation, but only about the changes that you're introducing, right? Not about any other part of the code, but only about the changes you're introducing. Then the existing paradigm of uh, pull requests works great. But as soon as you stray off that workflow and you, oh, you're getting started on something and you want to talk through the the changes you're about to make, or you're in the middle of something and you want to talk about it, all of a sudden the tools at your disposal are are much more limited. You're like pasting code in the Slack or you're hopping on a screen sharing call where you have the frustrations I described earlier. Um, and so we've been really looking for a tool that brings the same magic that GitHub brought, you know, 15 years ago to that one particular workflow to lots of other communication patterns that need to happen around software. For us to advance as an industry. I'm going to ask you about some of the pillars that you've talked about in the past, because I think it's a really great way to think about this problem space. But then just briefly, I think we all know the answer to this, but col collaborating on code makes the code better. I mean, I definitely think so. Not only does it make the code better because you're, you're thinking it through uh, with input from someone else, but I think it makes the team that's writing the code better, meaning you're building those bonds of trust when you face oh, good point. a problem together and then you tackle it together. Um, or just the more communication and feedback you're having among members of the team about the actual code itself, the more you're distributing knowledge to the team, the more you're building trust among the members of that team. And especially in a world where we're all remote from each other and we're not sitting down to lunch together um, in a lot of cases, like actually like talking about the code and doing some coding together in real time is a great thing to do together. It's like fun. It's a fun way to hang out. And so, you know, not only, you know, is, is the specific software that you may collaborate with in a finer grained way of better quality most of the time for that interaction, but the software you write separately is better for the improved communication and bonds of trust and knowledge transfer. That's I'm really place. glad you said that. You know, in the um, early days of uh, tech investing, when I got started, uh, that was actually a big selling point to um, maybe investors who didn't know tech as well, that you had a technology team that had worked together before, that was co-located, that had that trusted bond. Um, maybe that'll come back now that everyone's remote is something that we value and look for. That's really yeah, good. Yeah, it takes time to establish. Between well, any yeah, two and, people, it takes know, time to build that rapport. Special breed, right? Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. But software, there's breed. You sort of have to prove it. They're not going to be like, "Oh, you're in." I see that you're in uh, my uh, my directory now, so you're my guy. They're not going to do that. They're going to work with you, right? Um, mm -hmm. So, at any rate, uh, you have talked about these pillars, and we've covered a couple of them, which is social coding works. Mm -hmm. um, this idea of um, trying to be synchronous, and we'll talk a little bit more about that because it's easy to say and hard to do. Um, one thing you've talked about in the past, if, if this is still relevant, is this idea of building a whole widget. What do you mean by that? Well, when I thought about like 
collaborating on code and how to take it beyond where we are right now. Why are why are we in the equilibrium we're on right now where I talked about kind of only being able to discuss version control artifacts? Um, and it's because like the way version control works today is that we take a snapshot of the file system and then there's a variety of different editors that are all being used, but the common denominator is like the files get saved on the disk and the working copy and we take pictures of that. Um, and so I've always thought that to kind of take our ability to interact with each other to the next level, that we really want to like bake it direct, bake the idea of collaboration, um, bake multiplayer directly into the code authoring environment itself. Not something that like designers have in Figma, right? Like they can hop into each other's files and work together. But like as software engineers, we really haven't had it, at least not executed really well, like seamlessly, where it just feels like it's there something you can reliably reach for it. It works in an intuitive way. So that is a big part of the whole widget is imbuing multiplayer into the, uh, into the tool from the very first keystrokes of that tool's development. That from the beginning, we haven't just bolted this on as this afterthought, um, but we've actually engineered the entire thing to acknowledge that like you are working on this code with a team of other people most of the time and you need to have communication about the code you're writing or the code they wrote in that environment. So an integrated experience. Um, so that's a big part of why I think it makes sense to think about it as a vertically integrated solution. Mm-hmm. Um, but then beyond that, I just, I've always been passionate about the things I said earlier about just wanting to also just build the ultimate code editor. Um, and so I, I wanted to build that widget, even if the collaboration pieces I didn't depend on that. I just, I felt like unhappy with the options that were out there and wanting to build something better. Yeah, absolutely. And so we're kind of getting to one of the big topics here, um, which is around uh, responsiveness, right? This is one of that there should be the performance and responsiveness to get that trust, to get that right from the first keystroke collaboration. There's been a lot of technical choices and bets that you guys have adopted in order to make it basically seamless. When I'm typing, you're seeing it immediately. Um, and I want you to talk about that principle, like what you, how do you define that principle of responsiveness? And then I want to talk about some of the technical underpinnings of getting there. Yeah. So, I mean, responsiveness starts with you just using the tool by yourself, the conversation between you and the machine and your code. Um, and it really gets to like how a piece of software feels to use on like a tactile level like um and so you know we had previously created adam and in the process of creating adam we created electron um which has now gone on to you know post many of the desktop apps that people use um but one thing we were always frustrated with in adam was the tool was just never as snappy as we really wanted it to be um and so at a certain point we decided, okay, we've learned a ton from this. Let's start over and let's build, let's fix this. Let's really build a tool that's committed to performance from the very beginning. Um, and really early on, I mean, at the very beginning we thought, oh, maybe we could write the core of the tool in a more performant uh, technology than JavaScript, but still render the UI using Electron and web technology. But it, it didn't take long for us to just come to the conclusion like, 
no, we're never going to get there. Um, using web technology, like they're just fundamental limitations that it imposes on the responsiveness of the app. Um, because what we wanted, when you talk about what does responsiveness mean? And for me, you think about your display is refreshing depending on the display. And I think on Apple displays, it varies actually. Um, but between 60 and 120 times a second and people can, I can perceive uh, gradations of time that small. I mean, I don't know, maybe not even consciously, but you can feel it. You I'm really can. I'm often used to being very impatient, so I definitely can feel it. I can. <laughs> yeah, it's like as you're typing, if you're not seeing pixels on the screen on the next uh, display refresh, on the next frame, you can actually start to feel that over time. Even if you can't even put quite put your finger on where that sense of like being held back is, uh, is coming from your body kind of feels it and it, it, it it's felt in the form of kind of a stress that is sort of always there in the background that you kind of feel at the end of the day Business. and so getting latencies down to the point where you type a key and we've got pixels for you on the next frame every single time reliably and you could just come to rely on that um that was a big commitment that we had from the beginning a big reason why we had to abandon Electron. So, yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about you. A um, couple of things. You, uh, I think, created GPUI. Is that right? Yeah. 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 With this in mind that you could just render it and just take diffs in order to have a much faster. Yeah. The funny thing is, is we don't take diffs. Um, we, so if you think about React, like, which is this, you know, technology a lot of people are familiar with. They have this virtual DOM. So the idea is like, what you can do with React is you just say, here's what I want things to look like right now. And then they use the virtual DOM and be like, oh, well, here's what you want. And here's what you have right now on screen. So like, let's figure out what the difference is between those two and then manipulate the DOM, um, the document object model in the browser, and then you get what you want on the screen. But what we ask ourselves is like, do we... We don't even need a DOM. We don't need an object model that represents what's on screen. If we know what we want to be on screen right now, we have this great thing in the computer called a graphics processing unit that can, you know, if you look at a video game rendering, the entire world as you're like turning around and looking around this world is being redrawn from a different angle at, you know, the full frame rate of the monitor. So we have hardware in the machine that's like designed to do this. But unfortunately, a lot of UI frameworks and browsers and stuff were all created before GPUs were dominant and still kind of trace their lineage back to that paradigm. And so what we did with GPUI is kind of redesign the UI framework um, more along the lines of a video game where we, we assume a graphics processor is there and we assume that we can efficiently redraw the contents of the entire window on every frame. Oh, um, and not, uh, we're not doing that like 60 times a second, but anytime anything changes, we just redraw everything. So we compute a, you know, a tree of what we want to be on screen. And then we lay that out in a single linear pass and then we paint it. And we're able to do that in like a couple milliseconds. Mm -hmm. And why even bother with all of the browser and the style recalculation and the layout that they do and all of the complexity that has been added there 
to make that this malleable system that could be scripted with JavaScript with this lineage dating back into the late nineties. Like we just cut through all of that and go straight into the graphics hardware with the pixels we want. That's helpful. I didn't understand that. Um, and also I guess it's a really relatively straightforward set of things to draw, right? It's not. Right. Exactly. And that helps a lot is that we were able to kind of, I mean, we have about like 500 lines of code that actually runs on the graphics hardware. There's obviously a lot of code that runs on the CPU to get the right data to the, the shaders that run on the GPU. Um, but it's a relatively simple set of primitives that we need to render a 2D app. It's not a video game, right? We don't have like photorealistic rippling water or whatever, right? It's drop shadows. Right. And I do feel like I'm digressing a little bit because the center stage item is the illusion of collaboration, right, across people. And then I also want to talk about um, the selection of Rust and how you kind of came to that. So let's talk about the illusion of collaboration because you made some technical point. You have some technical points of view that support that, right? Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, we were talking about responsiveness. So I think we maybe really thoroughly covered kind of single user responsiveness, but then how do you get responsiveness when you and I are both editing the same source file and you're in, you know, on the East coast and I'm on the West coast of North America or something, you know, or me collaborating with my colleague Antonio in Italy, even at the speed of light, the maximal performance that the network would possibly be capable of, there would be a perceptible lag in my keystrokes if I tried to round trip everything through Antonio. So what we do instead is that we both actually maintain a replica of the data that we're editing in this data structure called a conflict-free replicated data type. The basic idea is that that's an eventually consistent data structure that he can edit and I can edit and then we exchange data. And when we apply each other's operations, we converge on the same representation of the world. How is that different from like an operational transform? Uh, it's related, but it's just a, it's sort of a different approach than okay. operational transforms. Um, it gets a little into the weeds exactly what the difference is, but to summarize, um, the operational transform approach is that when I send you my operation, you need to transform that operation in order to apply it on your document in light of whatever you've done that I have not seen yet. Whereas a CRDT is more you structure the operations and the data on which the operations apply in such a way that the operations can inherently be applied in an arbitrary order and they don't need to be transformed. And you do that by like embedding metadata into the document, which is present under the, under the surface, but not visible on screen. Yeah. All right. That's interesting. Well, let's move on to um, like the main course of this discussion of technical choices, because, um, you know, I think one of the things when we talk about the um, this feeling of immediate collaboration, this responsiveness um, is your selection of Rust, right, as your programming right. language. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that or I can ask you a few questions? Yeah, yeah. I'm happy to talk about it. You, you can interrupt me and ask questions. But like, yeah, what I'm I had my eye on Rust for a really long time, like before 1.0, I was always curious about it. Um, yeah, and it, it was always the promise of something that could give me the performance of a C or a C++, but 
without some of the pitfalls associated with C and C++. So getting kind of me the level of control over memory, uh, over parallelism, um, it being compiled and optimized. Uh, so getting low level, but then giving me an interface to that low level power that was actually really expressive and high level. And, you know, I don't know. I heard the quote that like C++ is a rocket launcher, but the only problem is that it comes pre-aimed at your foot. Um, and so, you know, I wanted the rocket launcher, but aimed at the target, aimed at the problem I was solving instead of my leg. Mm -hmm. Um, and that was what really appealed to me about Rust. Yeah. I like that. Um, okay. And, um, you know, I think all of these things taken together support some really unique, um, capabilities, right? Not just, I mean, certainly the big one is the feeling of collaborating in real, you know, real time. Uh, but you also have some cool stuff I wanted to just touch on because um, I know you had congratulations a release recently, right? Yeah, yeah. So we launched uh, Zed's public beta last week, and feels like it's going really well so far. We're getting some really good feedback from the community. Yes, and it's a tough community, so I think you should feel excellent about that. Um, let me ask Thanks. you a couple of things that I saw. Um, multi buffer. Can you describe mm, yeah. what that is? And then I'd love to talk about use cases and why that's effect like why is that important yeah so multi-buffers were really shaped uh by our interaction with rust and a big part of programming in rust is it's got this amazing type system and an amazing compiler where you can make a small change somewhere in your program and due to the expressivity of the type system that change kind of ripples out through the entire program at compile time where you're just having these long conversations with the compiler where you make one change and then you spend the next hour and a half fixing errors, changing, you know, and then all the errors are gone and you run it and it works. Um, it's like a magical experience. That's a magic but, trick. Yeah. Yeah. But you're working through these really long conversations with the compiler, these large numbers of errors. And the experience in other tools of working with errors is so they kind of give you a list of errors and as you click on them or use a key binding to work your way through them, you're like opening up these tabs and you're jumping around and changing context all over the place. So you are kind of, you're going to the errors. And we wanted an experience that was more like the errors come to you. And so that's the idea of a multi-buffer where we have all these little excerpts from all over the code base where an error occurs, but they're all combined into like this virtual buffer you can just edit. So you can have like a multi-cursor edit potentially um, where you're fixing kind of the same error that occurs in multiple files and make edits that, that span multiple files and hit save and save multiple files and like fix all those errors in, in one shot. So It's really hard for people to understand what a powerful feature that really is when you talk about it. I would say, you know, the just the huge bodies of code that people work through uh, is really hard to hold in your head. And then um, something we've seen is the true level of despair when you start introducing errors as you are sifting through trying to fix them. I think everyone, you know, oh, that's, yeah. that's a problem. Yeah. yeah, definitely. So, I mean, I don't know. We haven't solved everything about the misery of errors upon errors, but we've at least reduced some of the disorientation that I sometimes feel as I'm being like shuttled around to different locations in the code base. You jump to this error and you're like, Oh, where am I? You know, it's like having just them all collected in one place and being able to 
work down the list. And then an, a, another really cool experience is when you're pairing with somebody in Zed and you're like, okay, we've got 50 errors and they go to the bottom of the multi-buffer and you go to the top and you just fix errors and meet in the middle. <laughs> Things like that are really fun. Um, <laughs> and you can kind of see them. And it, yeah, that's a, it's really good for collaboration because when you're working on fixing errors, odds are that, um, you know, they're on an error, you're on an error, they're in a different file than you, but you're, you're working together on fixing errors. And so bringing it all together makes it really easy to see where the other person is and what they're doing. Helpful. Um, I want to just touch on a couple of other features and I know this is a podcast, we're not demoing today, but could you just describe what collaboration, let's say you and I wanted to collaborate, uh, what, you know, sort of what happens? Yeah, so in the upper right corner of the window, there's like a little add person icon. You click that, and if you've never, if I've never collaborated with you, the first step is I got to add you as a contact. So kind of add you to my buddy list by, you know, clicking another button to add you. Type in your GitHub username because we do GitHub OAuth for logging into Zed. Um, and if you're a Zed user, you show up, I, I add you. And then from that point forward, I could just click on you. And you get a little notification that's like, Nathan wants you to join him in this project. If you accept, a window opens for you and you drop right to where my cursor is. And you start out following me. So that means that if I move around, you'll go where I am. But as soon as you like move your cursor or start typing or whatever, you kind of break that follow. And now you're moving independently. And if at some point you want to sync back up, you hit my avatar in the upper... Yeah, at the top of the screen, you can. There's like a list of who's in the file and their avatars, or who's in the project, I should say. And you can click that, and there's like, of course, a key binding to do that as well. Um, and so that's kind of how it works: is uh, you sort of jump to where the other person is, and you talk about something, you follow them around, and then you break off and do your own thing. Then they jump to you, and you're kind of like, yeah, it's kind of like the Blue Angels. You're like flying in formation, and then you split off, and then you come back together. Um, yeah. We have your Super Bowl ad all planned out. <laughs> Great. Um, so what is the, let's switching over. Um, what haven't I asked you about the product that you want to talk about? Because I'd like to switch over to talking a little bit about the business. Well, the, the last thing about the product is just another of our pillars is design and a real commitment to a design that feels more like a text editor while surfacing the power of an IDE. And that's a tough challenge of like it kind of fading into the background and being attractive but unobtrusive and putting your content first and foremost. So we put a lot of energy into just making, getting the design right. Um, yeah, so that's that's one other big thing about the product. But yeah, those are our three pillars it, really is performance, kind of design. Down, like, text is king, right? So Yeah, exactly. Like, text is king, content is king. Um, and really trying to keep the signal to noise ratio high and yeah, make things discoverable, but not in your face and distracting you. Um, yeah, your code is the most important thing. How have you kind of evolved some, you said you're getting great feedback. Um, how, you know, where do you go for feedback? Are you working with, yeah, have you thought about that? Um, there's two main sources right now. One is we just have a, an icon you click in the status bar of the editor to send this feedback. And it's just like an, a buffer opens and you just say whatever you want. And so far we've been able to keep up with reading it all. Um, 
and it's a little overwhelming. There's a lot, and of course, software is very diverse, so there's lots of disparate feedback, and like collecting it all into a coherent understanding of what's going on is challenging, but we're doing our best. Um, and then we have a GitHub repo uh, where people open issues, and you know that's a little higher effort for the person giving the feedback. But the nice thing there is people can talk to each other and we have a upvoting system where you can kind of upvote an issue. Um, so those, those have been our two primary sources of feedback other than just like people saying stuff on Twitter. Help me understand kind of the roadmap of adoption, where you'd like to you know start, where you kind of mid-level and then what's the North Star for adoption? Um, I mean, I think Rust right now is going to be our our optimal experience because we ourselves write rust and so like that's a really good initial demographic and then we're also targeting web just because there's so many people doing that typescript etc um but the reality is is that we're a pretty language agnostic editor so i think like in general right now we're just focused on let's get as many software engineers in this tool and loving it irrespective of whether or not they want to collaborate. It's just like focusing on the single user experience. Um, but then once we get people using it, what we're hoping will happen is if you're having a good experience, maybe you tell your teammate about it and they get it and then they're having a good experience and then you're like, oh, let's try this collaboration thing. Um, and you dive in on that. And we're going to be investing uh, down the line even further in more text-based forms of collaboration and broadening the service area of the kind of the kinds of conversations you can have um but right now we're just focused on competing as an editor um it's pretty simple but a lot of surface area on that task um how long have you guys been in business i know we met through lee edwards yeah uh so we raised our seed round in spring of 2021 like march um, and then it was a year of just heads down development with, uh, my two co-founders and myself. And we also brought in a, a designer, uh, Nate, Nate Butler really early on, uh, to start, you know, focusing on this minimalist design that I've been talking about. Um, and we weren't even coding in the editor ourselves for about a year. Um, and then we spent the past year kind of bring the editor from a state where, okay, we can use it ourselves to adding the kinds of features that need to be in place to support a broader audience. Um, we of course have a ways to go, um, to widen and widen and widen the audience of people that we're going to be a good fit for. Um, but there are some people that are just really resonating with the strengths that we bring to the table right now. That's really helpful context, um, of like who, who's most likely in these, you know, first days to benefit the most. So that that's helpful. It's interesting. Um, but you know, everything's going great. You thought about this problem for a long time and then you quickly, relatively shortly have built it. Um, what was it like having two co-founders? How did that come to be? A lot of people who listen to the show are technical leads who might want to found a company. And so it's kind of a special experience you've had as a technical thought leader. How did you get your co-founders and how did you kind of kick this thing off with two co-founders? 
So I worked with both Max and Antonio um, on Adam previously. Actually, I sort of, they're both better engineers than I am at this point, but many, many years ago, I kind of, on, in different ways, mentored uh, both of them. So Max had graduated with a degree in physics and knew Fortran, and I sort of gave him a crash course in at that time, it was like Ruby and JavaScript and web development and pair programming, test-driven development, databases, right? Uh -huh. Everything. He had the raw programming capacity from coding in Fortran, and I kind of met, got him going. But then, of course, like he went on from that foundation I gave him to build Tree Center, which is like this masterpiece of a framework. Yeah. I was going to um, ask you about Tree Center because I, I don't really know if I understand what it is. It is a, so it's a parsing framework, which is basically like you feed it the grammar of a programming language and it spits out a, a library that can take programs written in that language and give you a tree representing the structure of the program. Um, and the really cool thing about tree sitter is it's incremental. So that means that, you know, when I first open the file, it's already really fast, but you know, in tens of milliseconds, it parses the whole file. But then as I edit it, it is um, recycling the work it did previously to give me a new tree in like less than a millisecond in most cases. Uh, so incremental. And then it's also very general. So the same grammar language, you know, there's a language for describing languages, um, can be used to describe all, all the programming languages. Like, And that's a tall order, like Ruby. The grammar for Ruby is like insane, um, but TreeSitter can describe it. Or Python, where like indentation is meaningful, TreeSitter is able to describe it. So yeah, it's generality, it's performance, and it's incrementality are really its big strengths. And yeah, I mean, he really conceived it based on me being like, this problem needs to be solved to build a great code editor. And then I went and joined GitHub and he stayed at Pivotal and then would read like the, the dragon compilers book on the bus every day, like just absorbing all the theory he needed to build this thing. And it's like, yeah, from not programming all the building that as his first project, it's like pretty, pretty impressive of him. Yeah. And then, so then to hop back onto the co-founder conversation, um, Antonio, I met, I think he was 19 and he started contributing to Adam he was still in university in Italy. Um, and I was on a trip in Italy and um, I was like, hey, we should meet. And so we met in, uh, in, in Torino um, and just walked around the Italian plazas or whatever, talking about Adam at the time. And yeah, over the years, we just became great friends. So yeah, there is nobody on this earth I would want to bow in this company with. Um, other than those two individuals. That's yeah. important because you go through every emotion available as a founder. And so that is important to have that relationship. Also, I like your uh, open source meet cute uh, with Antonio. Um, <laughs> I'm a big open source hippie. There's nothing open source can't do. Uh, but actually, I think taking away from what you're saying as well, I think for those who may want to be founders, I think a couple of things to take away is that you have a problem space. You don't have all the answers, but you had a problem space that tickled your fancy, right? And kept you in involved. 
And then I do think it's great, um, what I'm hearing is to contribute to open source projects, even if they're not fully answering the, the area of in intent that you care about. It seems like a great way to connect with other people who are in the same neighborhood. Yeah, and like another thing is, I had a mentality with both Max and Antonio of, I just like them both, and I wanted to help them. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I just, so, yeah, it's just like we built those relationships over a long period of time, um, and it ended up really paying off, but I didn't know I was going to start a company with them. So it was a relationship so, first. That's interesting. Yeah. 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 I mean, it sounds very straightforward, but it is interesting to think about. I talk to a lot of people who want to found companies and they don't have a co-founder. They don't have a partner and uh, there's, you know, they have a lot of anxiety about how to get that partner. So um, kind of sounds to me like you not only organically got your partners, but you weren't looking for a particular resume or Rolodex of contacts or network, right? You sort of started with a relationship. Right. And like, you know, I started with that dream of Adam. I mean, I was lucky enough to be at the right place at the right time and like, you know, have GitHub take a chance on me to build that thing. Um, and then they kind of shared that dream. And so that really helped too, to cement that relationship. Um, but yeah. Since you finished, um, you just finished your seed round, I think you just said, oh my goodness, my memory. Oh, we raised the Series A Sorry. over the summer. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know what letters and numbers and yeah. But, I don't think any of them mean yeah. anything anymore, as a matter of fact. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. um, however, it's early days. Let's just say that in your funding yeah. process. Um, you know, as I said, for other people thinking about doing this or they're, you know, they're getting a little bit of momentum. You know, how did you think about engaging with um, at Root Ventures? Is it its own particular thing? Like, how did you think about all the, I'm sure you met a ton of VCs and had a ton of options for funding. So, like, how did you think about who you wanted to accept funding from? Yeah, I mean, the funny thing is, is like, in 20, the very beginning of 2021, I left GitHub. I, I briefly joined a company called uh, Warp. Um and they were building a terminal. I thought I might want to do that. But then I, I don't know, I'd been working at GitHub for nine years. And so it took kind of leaving to run through the process of like, actually, I still want to build the editor. I can't give it up. Uh, and so very quick, you know, I had some savings from Microsoft acquiring uh, GitHub. And so at some point I was just like, you know, I probably am going to have to just like work on this for a while by myself in the wilderness and then I'll like put together a, a keynote presentation or something. And I didn't really know like what I was getting into. Um, but so I left and I was just like, whatever, we're going to figure this out. I mean, I had the good fortune of being able to just say like, I care about this and I'm going to spend some time on this. And it wasn't like a couple days when I started telling people and like word had gotten out that, um, people started being interested in putting money in. I mean, I think that was a very particular time for investment as well, right? Like things were really frothy. Um, but I was like, really? That's and so I just wrote like a Google doc describing what it was I was going to do. Um, and, you know, started pulling on threads. Uh, and what ultimately ended me, like led me to Root Ventures was I asked uh, Rob Me, who was a, uh, the owner or founder of Pivotal Labs. Um, hey, what do you think I should do here? 
uh, he'd just seen a lot of startups um, go through Pivotal and pretty well, like, and he recommended Lee. So really for me, it was like Rob's word. I really trusted him, uh, went a long way. Um, and then when I met with them, what I liked about Root was like the, the ground floor of their office is just looks like a machine shop. Like it's really gritty and just like, I don't know. So there's like a, just, yeah, I like their focus on like hard tech and I just got along with them on like a vibe level. I felt like, and as a first time founder, I felt like that was really important just to, it wasn't about just the money for me. It was about finding a person that can kind of help, help fill me in on some aspects of this thing that I knew I had some things to learn about. Um, and that's even gone further with red point, like the same decision processes, uh, behind choosing Erica and Patrick at red point. It's like, I just get along with them. Like I like them. Um, and I, I trust them, you know, not, not unquestioningly, like, you know, I bring my own perspective, but like, I really respect them as people and as advisors in the process. Um, say in the banking world. Yeah. No kidding. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Among other things. All in the middle of the night. (laughs) Right. Right. Like Erica's run a company before and taken it from founding to acquisition and like, yeah. So just, it's helpful for me to have like partners at the table that bring different experiences. Um, and ultimately there's nobody can know what to do, but by me and my co-founders, I think like fundamentally, like it's our responsibility to guide this ship, but it's nice to have really good relationships with other people at the table. Yeah. I think the actionable advice there for people who, you know, are maybe younger in their career or want to do this at some point would be, um, you know, it's okay if you're in your big company because you're learning skills and you're ma- growing your network, right? At your home company, yeah. growing your network. You had some great mentors who are able to, you know, advise you, uh, be on your side. Um, then the other thing you did is you made a little space. It doesn't have to be like you didn't take three years off, but you made a little space to do something. Uh, it's really kind of an agile methodology. You kind of planted your flag of like, this is what we're going to do until we do something else. And I think it's easy for people to get behind you when you have a specific notion. Yeah. Yeah. And I took a leap on a certain level. I mean, that I think that helped. But yeah, like talking about the network, like, um, I don't know. I always treat every single relationship I have as kind of sacred. Like it's important to always bring my best. And so luckily, like, you know, I worked my ass off at Pivotal and tried to have a good attitude every day, right? And like Rob saw that and he was willing to tell Lee like, hey, this guy's good, you know? Like, so that helped. Yeah. I love that. That's a special talent on your part. I mean, I'm only nice for one hour that I do this interview. And then the rest of the time. I doubt that. (laughs) I don't really like being around people, but but I get it together for this interview. Um, So listen, congratulations. It's an amazing uh, company. We're going to put in the um, show notes um, your URL, which is zdev, Z-E-D dot D-E-V as in Victor. And then um, there you can download a beta, right? Uh, download. Uh, can you download something to work with right now? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, right now we're only on the Mac and that's just because like I have a Mac and that's where I started and we're a little early to start adding 
more platforms. It's just like there are other problems to solve right now. So yeah, we're on the Mac right now. Um, but yeah, if you're on a Mac and you want to try it, it's free. Click I download. would encourage everyone to do it. It it's it looks amazing. It looks amazing. And what I will say is like, just you'll feel the speed. Um, and and when you if you go use another tool after you use Z for a while, you'll feel that it's not as fast. You know, it's really interesting. I, I We're going to wrap up here, but just that idea of that you mm-hmm. feel the speed or you feel the lack of speed in your body kind of subconsciously. And that can really detract from your ability to hold a whole complicated problem statement in your head. You know, that's it's it ha- it's material. It's not just a feeling, right? It's a material right. thing. That's interesting. It's also nice to feel good. Right. People love that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, listen, it's a pleasure to connect with you. Thank you so much for, uh, spending a little time with us and, um, all the best. Everybody should just start using Zed right now. Thank you, Jocelyn. Thank you very much for the opportunity.